0: This is sam of historiansplaining a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong these lectures are on soundcloud youtube stitcher spotify and other platforms and if you can help to keep them coming please go to my patreon page the link is in the description and if you sign up as a patron you'll have access to my patron only posts including the previous myth of the month number 20 on conspiracy theories but now i want to start a discussion of the myth of the old west or the Wild West, which arguably today might be the most fundamental core myth of America and American identity. You could say to aristocrats, aesthetes, the Old South might be the most definitive picture of America, American character. To intellectuals, it might be colonial New England and the Puritan heritage. But to popular culture, really, most of all, it's the West, with a capital W. And all of us can easily conjure up images, stories, characters, outlaws, bandits, cowboys and Indians, and so forth, that evoke a whole distinctly American mood and an ethos. As they might say in the Big Lebowski, it's an ethos. But what I want to try to do is not trace the whole history of that mythology, which is too complex and too multi-layered nor to try to debunk it with reference to the real history of the West, which is also too big, too sprawling, too complex to encapsulate in one lecture. As some of you might know, I went on six lectures just on Florida. So it's too much to try to give the sort of picture of the real West as opposed to the mythology. But what I hope I can try to do is show the relationship between the two, What are the points of concordance and conflict between our image and lore and literally moving images of the West, right? Which has become really the favorite subject of American cinema and even cinema abroad, right? The Western is maybe the most definitive and prolific movie genre there's ever been. How does that relate then, and how did that evolve out of real experiences and the real facts of life in the West in this particular era, basically the later half of the 19th century, from the end of the Mexican War in 1848 till about 1890 or so, when the frontier was declared to be officially closed. So it's a very complicated mythology, and it's a mythology that is related and connected, as I'll try to explain a bit later. It's related and connected to the myth of the frontier, but it is not the same thing, right? The frontier is a dynamic, moving historical process that sweeps across the continent. The Old West is a specific time and place with its own iconography, its own archetypal characters, its own scenery and atmosphere that transcends simply the idea the ideological idea of frontier so it's very difficult to know where to start a lecture like this and i'll probably have to do this in parts over more than one day as i did with conspiracy theories it's very hard to know where to start just begin with facts or to begin with fiction and fable and so i'm going to try to begin a place of contact between the two a moment of self dramatization, of self of self mythologization. So I want to start with simply a story, which was told by a real person named Teddy Blue Abbott, who had previously been a cowboy earlier in his life you could say an authentic cowboy although many historians would caution against using that term authentic but at least you can say he was a cowboy in the fairly strict and narrow historical sense that he took part in the massive cattle droves moving herds of cattle northward from texas to the rail towns of the midwest during the high period of these great cattle droves basically the 1850s to the 1890s. In his older age, Teddy Blue Abbott wrote a memoir which was titled, We Pointed Them North, Recollections of a Cowpuncher." So he sort of self-deprecatingly calling self by this colloquial term "cowpuncher," which more or less is synonymous with what we now might call a cowboy. And he published this memoir in his old age in 1939, but he told many stories, remarkably detailed, vivid, and as far as we can tell, realistic stories about his life on the great cattle droves back in the 1870s. And Abbott grew up on a cattle ranch in Nebraska, near Lincoln, which is now the state capital. And when he was young, as he describes his childhood and his boyhood in Nebraska, he did not aspire to become a cowboy. That was not his dream. Rather, his dream and his ambition was to be an Indian. And he describes seeing the Pawnee Indians moving back and forth through their area of Nebraska between the buffalo hunts and their winter encampments. As a boy, when he was just coming of age, age 12, he says that he resolved that he wanted to be one of them. And he describes one year as they were migrating back from the hunt to their winter camp, he says he went out and met with them. Quote, I went down to their camp and had a feast, and when they pulled out, my heart went with them. I made up my mind that as soon as I got to be a man, I would join them. But they were moved down to Indian territory, and I never saw them anymore. I did get to be a cowboy, though, and as Charlie Russell used to say, we were just white Indians anyway. End quote. So a passage like this was surely pretty shocking to the American reading public in 1939. And it might sound pretty shocking to us today as well if for slightly different reasons. By 1939, the American state had thoroughly embraced the philosophy that the semi-nomadic life of the Indians had to be stopped and that their mere existence as semi-nomadic peoples was a threat to the country and to civilization on some fundamental level and indians increasingly in the world of the popular press of hollywood and then of television were painted as bloodthirsty savages treacherous unprincipled dishonorable who needed to if not be wiped out at least had to be forced into a so-called civilized settled way of life and moreover by the middle of the 20th century It had become a sort of cliche, as a lot of us must know, to think of cowboys and Indians as implacably, essentially opposed enemies. Enemies in the fight over control of the American continent with the cowboys representing the cutting edge of American civilization, of technology, prosperity, and the Indians representing a backwards and dangerous obstacle in the way of this American advance, but this is not at all the story that Teddy Blue Abbott tells. Not only does he say here that his first hope was to be an Indian, was to join in that way of life, he also says that being a cowboy was a sort of second best. It was a kind of consolation prize in so far as the cowboys were like the Indians insofar as they lived a sort of semi-nomadic life on the cattle trails, a great deal like that of the Plains Indians buffalo hunting. So he, like many other cowboys, saw connections and parallels and even felt a kind of affinity for the Indians. And he goes on to say a bit later in his book, We Pointed Them North, he says that cowboys and Indians, in his experience, often encamped together So you may know on the great cattle droves, which I'll explain a bit more later, the herds and the cowpokes or drovers who moved them northward passed right through Indian territory, the zone that we today know as the state of Oklahoma. And in order to undertake these great ventures, they had to coexist peaceably with the Indians that they encountered. And as he says, they often encamped together, traded food, tools, horses, and other goods. They were truly economically interdependent. And he explains at one point, quote, the cowpunchers as a rule had some sympathy with the Indians. You would hear them say that their treatment by the government was a damn shame, end quote. Now, of course, Abbott is just one individual, writing these recollections many decades later maybe with the benefit of nostalgia. But nonetheless, it does seem by and large that these two groups of people did in some way coexist in a mutual relationship, if there was also at times a great deal of tension and maybe conflict. But if you listened to my lecture previously about Tulsa, which I posted about a year ago, the whole city of Tulsa really arose from this symbiotic relationship between the cattle herding industry and the core group of old landholders around Northeastern Oklahoma, which were Indian tribes and their leaders. Now, furthermore, not only that, but we really have to dismantle this supposed boundary of opposition between Indians on the one hand and cowboys on the other, because another important fact of the great cattle-droving era is that many cowboys were Indians. This has always been true, and it continues to be true right up into the 21st century. If we talk about ranch hands and cattle herders today in the modern West, there's always been a great deal of overlap between cowboys and Indians. Native Americans were the first people to know intimately of the terrain and climate of Western North America, They were fast to master the horse, firearms, and other essential tools in handling and herding droves of cattle. And so they were naturally among the first obvious people to be hired to handle and manage cattle herds on Spanish mission ranches in Texas, New Mexico, or northern Mexico, what we now think of as the southwestern United States, which was initially colonized by Spain and where Spanish missions and presidios had to survive largely by raising cattle. So it's always been true that many cowboys are Indians. And additionally, beyond that, the cowboys were, for a number of years, as I'll try to explain, seen as disreputable, dangerous ruffians, half-criminals, who were not to be trusted and who sort of lay outside the bounds of respectable civilization, even in the American West. And it was only late in the great cattle droving period, really starting in the 1880s, that some people started to change that image and tried to promote the cowboy as an admirable figure, a figure of strength, fortitude, good character, who could be emulated by Americans, and this was a crucial step in the mythologization of the cowboy, and who really started this process and made the cowboy into a sort of heroic, larger-than-life national figure. More than anyone else, the person who did that was the original cowboy showman himself, William F. Cody, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill, who launched Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in 1883. This show, this Wild West show, in a way was the beginning of the West as spectacle and as a sort of mythic world for the entertainment and inspiration and titillation of audiences to the East and overseas all around the world. But something that might be surprising again about Buffalo Bill's Wild West show is that it included almost half of the performers were indigenous Americans. And in some sense, bringing them into the show was exotifying, right? It was making them into exotic objects of wonder and spectacle. But they were not treated as villains or savages. They were given dignified roles in the show. Cody himself presented them, not as enemies to civilization, but as partners in the taming and civilizing of the West, who really taught the frontiersmen, like the cowboys, what they needed to know in order to bring order and prosperity to this wild and dangerous land of the West. And the real enemy in the Wild West show is not Indians, but the landscape, the landscape of wild animals, poisonous snakes, storms, tornadoes. And Cody, although he very much sympathized with the American state and wanted to see it expand and impose its sovereignty upon the wild landscape of the West, and hence he sympathized with General Custer who was ambushed and killed at so-called Custer's Last Stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. Nonetheless, he balked at the excessive glorification of Custer as a, a martyr killed at the hands of supposedly bloodthirsty savages. And he was quoted as saying, quote, the defeat of Custer was not a massacre. The Indians were being pursued by skilled fighters with orders to kill. For centuries, they had been hounded from the Atlantic to the Pacific and back again. They had their wives and little ones to protect, and they were fighting for their existence, end quote. So even in the eyes of this first star cowboy, this first great impresario of the mythic West, Buffalo Bill Cody, the Indians were honorable people fighting an honorable fight. And as I said, in the Wild West show, he hired dozens of Indians. He had them act out mock battles and attacks, including battles against the US cavalry, which in a sense puts them in a naturally hostile light to an American audience. But nonetheless he treated the performers with a high standard of dignity they received equal pay and treatment with white performers and perhaps most shockingly of all when we remember this fact today in 1885 sitting bull the political and diplomatic leader of the lakota sioux who led the coalition that fought that battle of little bighorn the so-called custer's last stand in 1885 sitting bull himself joined the Wild West show and traveled with it around the country and even overseas. Sitting Bull was given a lone act and featured as a major, or arguably the major, star of the show. In the process of this tour in 1885, Sitting Bull became close friends with the legendary sharpshooter Annie Oakley, who maybe I'll talk about more later. He ceremonially adopted Annie Oakley as a daughter and member of his family. And later after Sitting Bull returned to the Sioux community and engaged in further political struggles with the U.S. government, Buffalo Bill Cody actually tried to intervene and mediate the conflict between the Sioux nation and the United States in 1890. And he was trying to defuse the conflict when federal forces went to arrest Sitting Bull, attacked the encampment where Sitting Bull was residing, and Sitting Bull was shot and killed. And at least according to some accounts, part of why he died in that battle was because he mounted and tried to ride a horse that had been given to him as a gift by Buffalo Bill Cody, and this horse was a show horse that was accustomed to dancing and performing tricks at the sound of gunfire. So when the attack began, the horse danced instead of engaging in battle maneuvers, and this is part of why Sitting Bull didn't make it out alive. Perhaps that story is a little too perfect to be true, but it certainly is true that Sitting Bull accepted one of these show horses as a prized gift from Buffalo Bill Cody. This story of the demise of Sitting Bull perhaps underscores the immense irony that I'm trying to point to here, which is that the actual experience of migration, economic development and exploitation, diplomacy, warfare in the West in the 19th century was far more strange and complicated than we have ever been taught to believe. And whether you celebrate the taming of the West as was customary in American popular culture all through the 20th century, or if you condemn it as a great atrocity, either way, you probably accept this mythological assumption that the West was a place of implacably opposed forces and that these two great archetypes, the cowboy and the Indian, represent incompatible elemental civilizational forces, one of which had inevitably to destroy or subdue the other, right? That is this myth of cowboys and Indians is perhaps the core fable and image of the myth of the West. And hence, arguably, it might even be said to be the core myth of modern America, As probably many of you have heard, there's a notion, whether it's true or not, there's a notion that American children traditionally play games of cowboys and Indians, uh, doing mock battles or chasing and hunting one another. And that idea was so ubiquitous by the mid-20th century that it even became a cliche for American pilots and soldiers and military officers in the Vietnam War to refer to the war itself as a great game of cowboys and Indians. This quest to extend American power and control over a foreign land, not only off to the West, but all the way across the Pacific in Asia, was somehow an extension of this unending struggle, this unending deadly game of cowboys versus Indians. Yet if we talk to cowboys themselves, whether those who actually lived through the high droving period in the 19th century, or those later on who sort of styled themselves as archetypal cowboys with the accoutrements, the clothing, the music, the folklore, their actual view of Indians is very different. There's actually a sense of connection and affinity, even continuing up Into the mid 20th century, when the more common sort of mass media mythology was of Indians as savages and as, at the very best, in the best case, only as a tragic figure that inevitably had to be swept aside to make way for American civilization. And just as one last comment in this vein on cowboys versus Indians. I'll just point to a verse in the very famous familiar song, which has become sort of the unofficial anthem of the West, which is Home on the Range. So the history of Home on the Range is, is extremely complicated. It's maybe something I'll get into another time when I make lectures about music. It would be a really wonderful subject. But just in brief, it seems that the original prototype of this song was in the form of a poem written by a physician who was originally from Indiana, but who then moved to Kansas in the early 1870s and made a homestead claim on a piece of land, on the prairie, or the open range, as it was often called. And this song is very rich and complex. It makes reference to the animals, a sort of identification with the the freedom of the buffalo and the deer roaming on the range. Probably many of you have heard of it. It has this repeating chorus, Home, home on the range where the deer and the antelope play, and there seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. And then it has various verses describing the beauty, the beauty of the night sky, of the birds, and so on. And it's gone through many versions, and different elements have been added in and taken out through the decades as this song first traveled through the sort of folk oral network of the cowboys. And then emerged in print and then began to be recorded in the age of sound recording and radio in the 1910s and 20s and 30s. One verse which appears in some versions, I don't know exactly when and where it originated, it would probably take a lot of research, but I know it appears in Roy Rogers' version. So the so-called singing cowboy who had his own show, the Roy Rogers show, with episodes about the adventures of this sort of noble, happy, singing cowboy, you know, fighting bad guys in the West. But in Roy Rogers' version, there is a verse. The red man was pressed from this part of the West and is unlikely to ever return to the banks of Red River where seldom, if ever, his flickering campfires burn. This is a striking verse maybe for obvious reasons. On the one hand, at first blush, it can sound like a condemnation of the Indians and a celebration of the fact that they had been vanquished and expelled from this mythic imaginary zone of the range on on the Great Plains. It can be taken as triumphal, right? The whole song is celebrating the idyllic, almost Eden-like beauty of the range. So it's reasonable to suppose that this verse, too, is celebratory and triumphal, right? This is part of what is so beautiful and inspiring and peaceful about this life on the range, is that the Indians have been eliminated. It also can, of course, sound that way because it starts off right at the beginning with this sort of crude epithet, the red man. But at the same time, one can also take it as mournful. Right, the the whole song, although it's celebrating the range, it also has a wistful tone, and there is this sort of sad, mournful imagery of the flickering campfires along the riverbank going out, right, fading into darkness. For what it's worth, if one looks more specifically at the context, right, this was a time when battles between cowboys and Indians were absolutely routine in print and on screen. But when it comes to Roy Rogers, right, I don't know who composed or added in this verse, but it might have been Roy Rogers or someone on his writing team. And Roy Rogers himself was part Indian in his ancestry. One of his great-grandparents was a member of the Choctaw tribe. That was something he was proud of, maybe exaggerated the significance of. He and his wife also adopted several children, and one of them, named Mary Little Doe, whom they called Dodi, was also of Indian ancestry, specifically from the Choctaw tribe. And it happened that at that time, Texas law required that any Indian-born child could only be adopted by someone with Indian blood. And it happens that Roy Rogers could meet that legal requirement. And perhaps more significantly than that, if one looks at Roy Rogers' radio show and television show, he insisted that if any Indian appeared in his show, They had to be a friend to the main character. Indians could never be villains, and he would absolutely never allow his character to be seen fighting against Indians. So one can take that context as one will, but all in all, clearly this verse is deeply ambiguous, and that ambiguity is further intensified by this use of the passive voice, right? That first line says, the red man was pressed, from this part of the West, right? It doesn't say who did it or how or why. It just establishes the removal of the Indians as something in the past, which might be sad or tragic, but it is a fact of life and irreversible. It's unlikely he'll ever return. Indian removal is now part of the sort of fading past, and hence it is written in some way into the very nature of the land itself, right? The absence of Indians and that that tragic loss or tragic lack is as much part of the landscape now as the buffalo and the deer and the night sky, etc. And in this way, the Indian appears over and over again in the mythology of the West as an ambiguous figure, sometimes as a savage, sometimes as a murderer, a rapist, but also at the same time as an object of sentiment of tragic sympathy, who is nonetheless irreversibly consigned to the past, is is a figure of myth, not of present-day reality. So all in all, why does all of this matter, what I've been saying here about cowboys and Indians? Well, Native Americans, of course, are the first actual known historical figures in the factual history of the West. And so, inevitably, they are drawn and woven and cast in different roles and different guises in our myth of the Old West or the Wild West. But it is, in some forms, as a natural ally, even a sort of spiritual kin, to the archetypal white American, which is the cowboy. Now, as we established earlier, in actual fact, cowboys did not fight Indians. Cowboys were civilians, not fighters, and neither, for that matter, did pioneers. We often are given this image of pioneer wagon trains going off into the far wilderness and then being ambushed by Indians and having to, in quotation marks, circle the wagons to protect themselves. Well, that did not, in fact, happen. When pioneer wagon trains circled the wagons, they did so simply in order to create an enclosure and to keep their livestock within that circle overnight. They did not go out into territory where there was any danger of Indian attack. They only ventured out after the U.S. had already clearly established sovereignty over a given zone and route through the West and there was no significant danger of combat with Indians. So how did that happen? This question is still open, right? And as I said, that verse of Home on the Range uses the passive voice. The red man was pressed from this part of the West and it leaves this gap, this ambiguity As does, for that matter, as does Teddy Blue Abbott, whom I quoted earlier, right? When he talks about the Pawnee people that he encountered in Nebraska, he just says that at some point they were moved down to what we now know as Oklahoma. But he doesn't say, how did that happen and who did it, right? If it wasn't the cowboy and it wasn't the pioneer, who was it who actually went into the West and fought Indians and displaced them off of their territory and imposed U.S. sovereignty on the ground in the west to make way for this westward expansion? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple. It was the cavalry. The paid, uniformed U.S. cavalry under the command of the federal government. It was the federal government that carried on diplomatic and military relations with the indigenous nations and tribes. It was the federal government that repeatedly made and broke treaties with these different nations and tribes. And it was the federal government that dispatched armed forces to quell or, when necessary, kill or expel indigenous people, in order to make way then for civilian exploration and settlement in the West. This basic fact, as I'll hopefully talk about more, has been obscured by the alternative mythology of the Old West that has been built up in the years since. But if we go back to the late 19th century, to this period when control of the West was still in question and when there was still open armed conflict in the West between indigenous nations and the US government, people at that time were very clear on this fact. The audiences for the stories, the news, the lore, the imagery of the West back East and even abroad in Europe They clearly understood that the front edge of US power was the cavalry. And even Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which I referred to before, which was the first effort to sort of make popular entertainment out of the imagery and stories of the West, even the Wild West show was accurate on this point. It did not show cowboys and Indians fighting, because that would have made no sense. It showed cavalry and Indians fighting. And when we think of American nationalists who wanted to use these struggles for control of the West to build up a national mythology, they did not seize upon the cowboy as their symbol, not at all. Rather, the archetypal hero of the Western frontier upon whom they seized was General Custer. So at this time, if we go back to the 1870s, 80s, 90s, the events in the West were fitted into the ongoing developing mythology of the frontier. And the people who ventured into the West, whether you're talking about paid fighters, mercenaries, prospectors, cattle ranchers, they brought with them the inheritance of this long-lasting American frontier mythology. So If one goes all the way back, certainly to the 18th century, arguably even all the way back to the 17th century, there's this embedded idea that American society is different from Europe, that it is somehow more free, there is more possibility, broader horizons, especially for the ordinary folk, the ordinary man because of the enormity of the American continent and because of Americans' ability to continually pick up and move westward into the wilderness. And even Benjamin Franklin, all the way back in the 1750s, wrote at one point, quote, "...so vast is the territory of North America that it will will require many ages to settle fully. Until it is fully settled, labor will never be cheap here." So he's seeing a fundamentally different political economy where there's more opportunity, more chance for prosperity for the working person because there's always a scarcity of working people in proportion to the enormity of the land. And furthermore, as the revolution unfolded and the early republic, more and more American commentators argued that America had a fundamentally different character. It was more free, it was more equal, and that there were not entrenched classes in America as compared to the old states of Europe, because if one was exploited, if one's freedom was constrained, one could always set out to the frontier. And also that this somehow shaped the American character or personality because the frontier was a place of challenge, of danger, and hence those with the greatest ingenuity, the greatest fortitude, the greatest vision, courage, would succeed and rise to the top. And those who remained at the bottom of society were those who simply lacked those qualities. So it was a sort of self-justifying myth of American civilization. And it happens that the foremost and most prolific scholar of the frontier myth in America is named Richard Slotkin. And he argues that the idea of the frontier was deeply embedded in American self-conception, the American identity, but it came repeatedly into crisis as this frontier extended into the western lands west of the Mississippi. And Custer's Last Stand happened to provide a sort of reprieve and allowed this frontier mythology to last and develop longer despite these crises. This way of thinking of America as a country shaped by the existence of the frontier endured through the Civil War and into the Reconstruction period. But it then started to experience, in Richard Slotkin's argument, it experienced a crisis in the 1870s. And there were a number of reasons it seems why this happened in Slotkin's view. So while Americans took with them this sort of triumphal and self-congratulatory mythology of the frontier, by 1876, this mentality was under strain and plagued by self-doubt. For one thing, in the mid 1870s, there was a major market crash and economic depression. And just as the country was supposed to be celebrating the centennial of independence in 1876, They were increasingly plagued by class and labor unrest, especially on the railroads. There was the failure of reconstruction and backlash of violence in the South. There was a series of rolling corruption scandals, plaguing the entire Grant administration and deeply tarnishing this Northern Union hero of Ulysses S. Grant. And also there were growing moral qualms about westward expansion. So as the country was increasingly feeling this internal self-doubt about its own institutions, its own moral fiber, there was more and more dismay then over the violence and dispossession of Indians in the West, and a growing sense that this westward expansion was no longer something noble to celebrate, but it was just an expression of greed and avarice, something shameful rather than a point of pride. And so arguably this whole cloud was hanging over these centennial celebrations in 1876 and pioneer forces were trying to move beyond the Great Plains and into the mountain west including for one thing into the Black Hills this area of traditionally Sioux territory in the Dakota Territory where gold had been discovered and were now prospectors, adventurers, mercenaries were rapidly moving in so you could see again this invasion of the black hills as just another instance of what more and more seemed to be an expansion just of greed and self-interest and then in the middle of this crisis comes the Battle of Little Bighorn, where General Custer's forces had been dispatched into what's now Montana in order to try to stop the westward advance of Sioux Indians who were fleeing from this invasion of their territory in the Black Hills. And George Armstrong Custer himself was already a celebrity before this point. He had been a sort of young star. He was called the boy general. He had been a kind of Wunterkind of the Union forces in the Civil War. And then after the war, he'd sort of gone out in search of more adventure, gotten involved in these wars in the West. And he was something of a golden boy, literally and figuratively. He was known for his curly blonde hair. He was seen as dashing and beautiful. And it happens that he led a force into the Bighorn Mountains in what's now Montana to try to intercept and stop this, what they saw as an incursion of the Lakota Sioux westward into territory that didn't belong to them by treaty. And he and his cavalry detachment came upon an Indian village near the mountain called Little Bighorn, which he took to be an enemy base, and he charged straight on, not realizing that this was not only an enemy village, but actually the major stronghold of the Sioux forces under the leadership of Sitting Bull and the war commander Crazy Horse. And so they were then ambushed, surrounded, and killed almost to the man by this force of 3,000 Indian fighters. When news of this complete destruction of Custer's forces got back to the east, it created waves of enormous public shock and outrage. There was immediate controversy in the papers, on the streets, over whether the Americans ought to simply pull out of this territory and cut their losses, or should double down and send more forces to totally destroy this enemy nation. And many Eastern Americans, including, for one thing, Walt Whitman, actually eulogized and enshrined General Custer as a kind of martyr hero, even a Christ-like figure. And it happens that Slotkin took the title of his book on the frontier mythology in the 19th century the fatal environment from a poem called the death sonnet for custer by walt whitman so whitman in this sonnet describes receiving the news of this disaster and he writes quote the battle bulletin the indian ambuscade the craft the fatal environment, the cavalry companies fighting to the last in sternest heroism. So, you know, we often think of Whitman as this kind of counter-cultural iconoclast, but really later in his life, he became a pretty straightforward American patriotic nationalist. And he celebrates the tragic heroism of these cavalrymen, and he casts aspersions on the Indians as crafty, as cunning, And this phrase, the fatal environment, it means on one level, the surrounding, right? The maneuver by which the Indian fighters on horseback surrounded Custer's detachment and were able to destroy them. But it also has this double resonance, right? Of the environment in the sense of the dangerous, wild, untamable landscape of the West into which these Americans ventured and then died. And the great significance of Custer's Last Stand, as it came to be called, is that Americans at the time seized upon it as the central mythic moment that redefined this westward expansion and redefined it not as simply a greedy land grab or gold grab, redefined it instead as a heroic and self-sacrificing venture into the wilderness. And the central sacrificial hero was Custer himself. This seems very much to be the way Americans tended to think about the West in a way that was in some ways realistic because it, it was frank about the violence, the direct warfare, the confrontation between mounted warriors of different nations, but also very self-serving, right, and self-congratulatory. This is the way people in the late 19th century understood the Western frontier. But that began to change starting fairly soon afterwards, starting in the 1880s. And then increasingly by 1900, the mythological image of the West and of the Western frontier changed. A new mythology, a mythology of the Old West, of a nostalgic West, a West of honor, adventure, freedom, and a West in which the central character was not a military commander at all, but rather was a humble, hardy, independent working man, the cowboy, instead became the central hero. Such that General George Custer more or less dropped out of popular consciousness, and instead the sort of middle-brow American public instead thought of the West as the land of the cowboy. So it's not too difficult to guess why the mythology of the West shifted in this time. The ideological needs that the Western frontier could serve changed, So in the late 19th century, the big crises stemmed from the perceived weakness of the state. Its authority had failed, for one thing, in the Civil War itself, also in the draft riots that broke out in the North during the war, And these failures continued then with the violence in the South during and after Reconstruction, defeats in the West, like in the Great Sioux War, and in the internal labor unrest, the waves of strikes and sabotages. And in this context, Custer's last stand allowed for a transmutation a change where the failures of state power could be seen as noble sacrifice or even as martyrdom. It helped then to provide a moral rationale for expanding state and military power. And state power did expand dramatically in the late 1800s and early 1900s, with the complete closing of the Western frontier, the U.S. intervention abroad in the Spanish-American War, the expansion then overseas to new colonies, especially the Philippines, where the United States forcibly suppressed an independence rebellion, and then culminating with World War I and with the creation of new federal and state bureaucracies to enforce all kinds of new laws, Such as prohibition. So from that point onward, in the 20th century, the growing national fear was not of a weak, powerless state, but more the opposite, fear of a weak and powerless individual, weak as against both the state and big business, or monopoly trusts as they were called at the time. And there was anxiety about the general anonymity and anomie of modern city life in which the individual man was seen to have little control or independence. And the whole progressive movement was driven in large part by a quest to recover the autonomous individual as against large institutions and to revive what was seen as sort of the prototypical self-supporting independent American. And progressives such as Teddy Roosevelt, most obviously, embraced the West, the imagery, the lore, the landscape of the West, as a place for the lone striver to set out and battle against the elements. And this is partly what he believed he had done as a young man in the West, in the Dakota Territory. And he was known to flaunt his sort of adventurous wilderness pastimes, like big game hunting, He, as president, spearheaded the creation of national parks in order to protect and preserve this sort of wild landscape. And he saw the West as an arena for cultivating masculinity, right? A place where people could go, young men could go and rough it in the terms of the time, sort of return to nature and discover their own strength, their own ruggedness to counter the softness and dependency of Eastern life as it was seen. You know, and in this way, Teddy Roosevelt was very much in line with other Harvard men, right? He was a Harvard man, and there were a lot of blue-blood, Ivy League-educated elite men who felt that their boys were getting too soft, and that's part of why they promoted things like college football to toughen them up. But the ultimate arena for this sort of masculine revival was the West, And so in the 1900s, and even more so after about 1920, the new audiences, both elite and popular, wanted to see the West as an arena for strong, independent men who stand apart from state, corporate, or institutional power, who are sort of self-reliant, free agents. And the cowboy, of course, filled this role. Which is ironic, we should note, because in fact, cowboys were very much dependent. They were wage earning workers, they were dependent upon their employers and upon the cattle industry and the larger economic forces that drove the cattle industry, of which they themselves were a creature. And moreover, In the cattle droves, they moved through the West in packs, very tightly knit teams that usually had rigid discipline and routines, almost militaristic in a way. But that's not how they came to be perceived. They came more and more to be romanticized as rough, tough, even heroic loners living by their own rules. So the cowboy became the central character of the new Western myth, the, the Wild West myth, a mythology that Americans themselves supposedly were changed by the frontier, right? So no longer was it taught that Americans were the bearers of civilization and industry and Christianity, which they brought into the wild and imposed upon the wild. But now it was understood that the, the frontier and the wilderness had changed Americans in turn, and that those changes, new sort of discovery of one's half-wild nature, needed to be brought back to the East and to the cities, and that Americans were distinct not only in being more free or more equal than Europeans, but also in having, in a sense, gone feral, like the maverick right, the word for the unbranded free-roaming animal on the range, right, it's still today a point of pride for an American to claim to be a maverick. So in this sense, Americans had rewilded themselves, and they could not or should not be tamed back. This, you could say, is the new mythology that the cowboy personifies. So if we say, okay, that's the change in thinking that happened, how did this happen? Who were the cowboys really? How did actual real life cattle drovers on the prairie and on the Western plateaus evolve into this mythic cowboy? So for that, I'm gonna step back and give a little outline of the actual history of the cattle industry as it was experienced by the drovers. So one has to begin with a bit more about the geography, of course, which I have not talked about. Probably most of you know, there is a large eastern woodland covering much of eastern North America with a small mountain chain, the Appalachians, running through it. Then in the middle of the continent, there's a massive basin drained by the Mississippi River system. And as one moves through this flat basin, the climate from east to west becomes gradually more dry so that forests give way more and more to grasslands. And so the areas west of the Mississippi, traditionally called the prairies, are actually very climatically complex. There is, of course, colder and deeper winters to the north, milder winters, hotter weather to the south. But also, the climate is wet enough for large-scale agriculture more to the east closer to the mississippi as one goes further west and the elevation becomes higher and one approaches the rocky mountains it becomes gradually too dry and unsuitable for agriculture so crops like cotton in texas or maize and wheat in kansas and nebraska they eventually cannot be grown productively if one gets far enough to the west And it is only possible at some point to exploit this land through animal husbandry. And this was a fact that Anglo-Americans had to discover as they migrated and colonized west, beginning firstly with Texas. So Anglo-Americans started to move into Texas in the 1820s and 30s, into this land that was a territory of Mexico. And their goal was to expand cotton cultivation to bring slaves and cottonseed westward onto this large prairie to grow this cash crop. But eventually, they reached this boundary where cotton cultivation couldn't extend any further. And instead, they had to adopt the raising of cattle. And to do so, they hired poor men, working men of all different races and colors, as ranch hands and cattle herders. And they basically had to learn the arts of cattle ranching, from local Mexican people who had been doing it for centuries by this point, using cattle descended from those brought over by the Spanish colonizers hundreds of years before. So there was already a long history in Mexico, and especially in this far northern frontier zone of Mexico, in what we now know as Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, There was a history of cattle ranching, especially around the Spanish Franciscan missions and the presidios, and the cattle handlers on these ranches were called vaqueros, simply meaning cattlemen. And so these new cattle herders who were migrating in from the United States into Texas had to take on the practices, the tools, the accoutrements, and to a great degree, the language of these vaqueros. Almost all of the definitive marks, the symbolic tools, the symbolic clothing that we associate with the cowboy, were adopted with small adaptations right from these Mexican vaqueros. So the Mexican sombrero, the large, wide-brimmed felt hat to protect from the sun, this became the flatter, wide-brimmed felt hat of the 19th century cowboy, and then from there evolved into the swooping-brimmed Stetson-style hat that we now call a cowboy hat. The vaqueros wore elaborate scarves and sashes, especially to wrap around their necks and faces to protect against blowing dust. These became the bandanas of the cowboy. They wore hide or leather chaparejos, these large uh, leather coverings over their trousers to protect against brush and thorns. And this was simply then shortened from chaparejos to chaps. They tied espuelas, sharp spikes, onto their ankles or their boots which then became spurs, and they carried rawhide ropes called las reyatas and los lazos in order to rope and control cattle, and these became lariats and lassos, and almost all the other common cliché terms that we think of in relation to cowboys and cattle herding, like stampede, rodeo, desperado, Bronco, which originally meant rough or crude in Spanish and then became a word for an untamed wild horse in English. All of these were adopted more or less directly from Spanish and from the language of the vaqueros. And as for these cattle herders themselves, in the early stages, in the 1830s and 40s, they did not call themselves cowboys or anything like that. They simply called themselves vaqueros from the Spanish, or sometimes it was then anglicized into buckaroo. This sort of industry then was already growing and in place with a very mixed workforce, right, of men of all ethnicities, all colors, creating this sort of shared set of customs and terms for managing and herding cattle herds when then the Mexican War broke out and the United States seized a large section of northern Mexico and annexed it into U.S. territory, thus opening up easier movement and expansion westward, both into Texas and beyond Texas into the southwest. And this meant, of course, more migration and more attempts to colonize and exploit drier, scrubbier lands in which then cattle even more were crucial as the economic base for expansion. The main breed that allowed this cattle boom was what we call the Texas Longhorn, which is a type of relatively small, narrow-bodied, and very hardy cattle who were able to live on rough, harsh terrain with limited food and water who could survive droughts and who also had large horns allowing them to fight various dangerous predators like coyotes and wolves. So with the combination of the Texas Longhorn breed and these highly skilled, folk-trained vaqueros or buckaroos, the cattle population multiplied and expanded, mainly within Texas, but also somewhat further to the West as well. The question then, of course, was who was the market and how would these cattle be delivered to buyers? And so in the 1850s, in the aftermath of the Mexican War, some ranchers began to hire teams of these buckaroos, To undertake large droves to move thousands of cattle at a time to market towns on the Mississippi, such as New Orleans and St. Louis. And this could make some profit, but it was very, very difficult, right? There are multiple rivers, forested, swampy terrain. It was a real, long, difficult undertaking. So these large droves remained fairly limited and not that frequent until the dramatic disruption of the civil war which actually ended up massively spurring on this cattle boom so for one thing the civil war drew a lot of money and men to the war front in the form of of taxes of forced contributions of conscription so money and labor were taken away including from texas and drawn to the war front to the east And one effect of this was that it halted the advance of the cotton plantation economy. And a lot of the far western fringe of cotton plantations were simply left abandoned. Also, so were a lot of the cattle ranches. And this meant that now these herds of cattle, for months or years at a time, were simply left to roam free and set out onto the unobstructed western prairie where they could then graze and multiply at will. So by the end of the war in 1865, there are massive free-moving, free-roaming, basically feral cattle herds all over Texas and even further west. So after the war ended in 1866, now a lot of those men who have survived the war are returning back to civilian life. Many ex-Confederate soldiers are now unemployed, looking for work. A lot of them migrated west. Also, there were millions of ex-slaves and some freedmen from the southeast also migrated west to try to get work to rustle cattle, to try to gather up, round up brand cattle in order to mark who owns them or at least claims them, in some cases castrate them to make oxen and to just somehow move them to market. And at the same time, these large routes to the north and the northwest have been reopened. It's now safer to travel through Indian Territory, Kansas, Arkansas, Missouri. The railroads are being reopened and rapidly expanded. So now there are large, busy railroads going east-west through Kansas. And so the natural strategy now for ranchers and cattle herders to make money is to round up as many of these cattle as possible off of the prairies and move them in massive northward droves. So the sort of high period, the heyday of the enormous cattle droves starts quickly in 1866 and then continues till about 1880 or so. The workers who moved these droves northward on the trails, like, for instance, the the massive Central Avenue called the Chisholm Trail, They are generally called drovers. That's just the sort of neutral term. They're also informally called cowpokes or cowpunchers, or also sometimes that older term, buckaroos. These men had very difficult, harsh, dangerous conditions of work, trying to move, say, 5,000 or 10,000 head of cattle northward up the Chisholm Trail through the prairies, in the spring and summer on the open great plains with the very volatile dangerous weather the storms the tornadoes it was very very taxing and dangerous They had to be constantly on the move, they got very little sleep, they were exposed to the harsh elements, heat, cold, wet, and also to dangerous animals, poisonous snakes, and they were exposed to the threat of stampedes, which could start unexpectedly, especially at night, and trampled many people to death. There's a remarkable amount of actually surviving records of this experience, because these were adult American men, and a lot of them were literate some of them wrote about their experiences in letters, in journals. There's a remarkable surviving diary of a drover named George Duffield from 1866, from this first season after the end of the Civil War, when these enormous cattle droves really jump-started. And so in George Duffield's journal, he records on April 6th, quote, everything wet, hard wind and rain, cold, May 1st, traveled 10 miles to Coriel, big stampede, lost 200 head of cattle. May 2nd, spent the day hunting and found only 25 head. These are dark days for me. And May 13th, big thunderstorm last night, stampede, lost 100, hunted all day, found 50, all are tired, everything discouraging. So this is the sort of travails that these cowboys would have to go through, moving these herds mile by mile, hoping to get as many of them as possible to that end point, which is the railhead town, usually in Kansas. Abilene and Wichita were major endpoints of these northward trails. Some also would go further east into Kansas City or Sedalia in Missouri, and some also went further to the Northwest, through Colorado, all the way to Cheyenne, Wyoming, in order to ship the cattle to California and the Pacific. So it was a real grueling journey But if one was lucky, one could at least make a living and have some adventure, make some friends. And there was, as I'll talk about later, there was a certain degree of romance that developed around this experience of the cattle drove and life on the trails. But it didn't last for very long. And the beginning of the end started in 1873 when an engineer in the East patented the design of barbed wire, which could be put up fairly quickly and cheaply. It was light, but because of its sharp points, which could tear into flesh, it would effectively deter or even kill cattle who tried to push through it. So this provided a new way of controlling these free roaming cattle who had been just wandering around on the prairie. And so fairly quickly over the course of the 1880s, first farmers began to fence in their croplands. So where previously, if you wanted to grow crops out on the western prairie where there were these free-roaming herds, you had to somehow put up a high wall or a high strong rail fence to keep the animals out of your fields. Well, now with barbed wire, you could string this fence all the way around a massive enclosure of thousands of acres and the cattle would have to go around it. And so would the cattle herders. And so this began to disrupt the open range and sometimes to block off what had been these open cattle trails going north from Texas to Kansas. Following on the heels of this in a sort of arms race, then ranchers also began to use the barbed wire, which then, for one thing, reduced the need for so many cowboys to rustle and manage the herd. And so with this new disruption, it forced some ranchers to look for more distant, more remote, higher elevation lands where the cattle could still roam and graze freely. And if they were using barbed wire, it also made it easier to manage those herds when they did go farther out to the west. And so there was a rapid movement of the cattle economy northwestward into the upper ranges in Colorado, Wyoming, and especially Montana, which had harder, more rugged terrain and colder, often brutal, winters. So all of these things made the work of the cowboys or drovers more difficult and more limited. It reduced the demand for these cowboys. And many of them, when they didn't have work on the trails, they instead had to migrate into towns or even back east to look for jobs. And those who stayed and continued to work in the cattle industry had a more localized and sedentary life. And they had to deal with difficult conditions like the very harsh winters. So in this way, the, the era of the great cattle droves declined very quickly in the 1880s. In 1890, the Census Bureau, for the first time, reported that the frontier was officially closed. There was no more open, unsettled land left, and this caused a certain degree of sort of national soul-searching, including in the West itself, where there was a growing sense that the cowboy way of life was over or it was rapidly fading out, and there was a sense of sort of loss and nostalgia around it. Not long after that, you could say the final nail in the coffin came in 1901 with the discovery of oil in Texas and in Indian country, in the the territory we now call Oklahoma. So now oil derricks, pipelines, and rails sprung up very quickly with this oil boom, which further disrupted and segmented the rangeland and caused more and more dangerous obstacles in the way of the movement of the cattle herds. So after 1901, the era of droving is now definitely over. And to a great degree, even the big cattle ranches in Texas and in Montana and other places were broken up. And the land more and more was fragmented to make way for oil drilling and and vestiges of the cowboy life did carry on in certain places, in certain areas of ranchland in the far western uplands, and also in the rodeo circuit, this sort of outgrowth of the life of the cowboys, which I'll talk about later. Okay, so if that basically tells you more or less who were these original prototypical cowboys who worked in this industry. And the journalist and writer, Russell Martin, who wrote an absolutely wonderful book called Cowboy, the Enduring Myth of the Wild West, he estimates that cumulatively, all together, in the whole era of cattle droving from the 1850s through the 1880s, a cumulative total of about 40,000 men worked on these cattle trails, moving these herds. So we're talking about a really limited population that nonetheless captured people's imagination in this completely outsized way. Much like you know, scholars have written thousands upon thousands of books about the fairly small number of Puritan colonists in early New England. Likewise the cowboy has sort of exploded, engendered this enormous fascination and this constant reproduction of stories, images, songs, movies. How were they seen at the time? How did this happen that they took on this mythic stature? Well, early on in the height of the cattle droving period in about the 1870s, these cattle punchers, as they were called, were very much looked down upon. They were seen as working men, poor, low status, uncouth, crude, They were looked down upon for being socially rootless and unconnected, for being racially mixed. There were cowboys, as I said, of all colors, white, black, indigenous. Even the most sympathetic viewers who wrote about these cattlemen from the point of view of the towns and cities, even the most sympathetic ones tended to look down upon them as naive and easy marks. And a great example of this is in the Wichita Eagle, which published an editorial in 1874 talking about the seasonal influx of these cattle drovers into Wichita. And it says, quote, The cattle season has not yet fully set in, but there is a rush of gamblers and harlots who are lying in wait for the game, which will soon begin to come up from the south. The purlieus of crime are not more than in many eastern cities of boasted refinement and good order. But woe to the greenie who falls into the hands of the dwellers therein, especially if he carries money." So this is a really fascinating passage because it casts these men as as naive, as easy targets for swindlers, gamblers, harlots, meaning prostitutes. And it casts them, moreover, as animal-like. They are the game. They are the animals who are going to be hunted by these predators lying in wait. And that seems to have more and more suffused people's sense of the cowboy, whether they saw them sympathetically or scornfully, they saw them as somehow animal-like, as taking on the qualities of the animals that they herded and fought. And it was at this same time, or a little later, in about the late 1870s, that these drovers started to be called cowboys. That was not a term that they had applied to themselves previously, and it was not normally used for them. As I said, they were called buckaroos or cowpokes. They started to be called cowboys, and at this early point in the 1870s, this was not complimentary. It was a derogatory term. For one thing, it's very condescending to call an adult man a boy. And moreover, cowboy seems to imply that they are animalistic. They've somehow become cows themselves. And this phrase cowboy, it was used for many years previously in Irish English, specifically to mean raiders and thieves right? A cowboy is an unsavory criminal character. And it was common, again, for many commentators to present them not just as naive, like in that passage from the Wichita Eagle, but even as ruffians and hoodlums, a danger to society. And another Kansas newspaper a few years later in 1882 printed, quote, when he feels well, and he always does when full of what he calls Kansas sheep dip, the average cowboy is a bad man to handle. Armed to the teeth, well-mounted, and full of their favorite beverage, the cowboys will dash through the principal streets of a town yelling like Comanches. This they call cleaning out a town. End quote. So here you see the cowboy turning into a bandit and moreover being likened specifically to the Indians. Right? They yell like Comanches. And you can see here a developing sort of complex character with this duality of innocence and savagery. So then it's only natural that the mythologization and the romanticization of the cowboys began as a self-mythologization, right? So I'm I'm gonna try to describe here how the cowboy became a mythic figure, a national mythic figure. And it starts firstly with self-mythologization then endorsement and canonization from the intellectual and literary set in the East, and then finally ritualization in the rodeo. So to begin with self-mythologization, the veneration of the cowboy as this romantic figure really began in their own folklore and song. So music was very important to the cowboys. It was a pastime, something to do to entertain yourself and stay sane on these long journeys. It also was an important tool for keeping control of the animals. So calming music could help to prevent stampedes, which often broke out at night, which could lead to losing an entire herd of cattle to the wilds, or to much worse, to being stampeded to death. So through the nights, drovers, one of their great hardships was that they had to wake up in shifts and then circulate around the herds, monitoring and trying to keep them calm. And it became a standard custom to sing or play a musical instrument in order to calm the herd and also in order to signal that you were still alive and on your horse to the other horsemen so that if if you ended up being attacked or or bit by a rattlesnake the others in your company would know. So these cowboys would ride around the herds late at night singing and playing music, especially on instruments that were lightweight and easy to carry and that could make a soothing sound in proportion to their small size. So those were the, the harmonica and the fiddle. So those were the sort of original, definitive cowboy instruments. It was only much later that the fiddle, at least, was swapped out for the guitar, which happens to be better suited for for self-accompaniment while singing. But it was too cumbersome to carry on horseback. So this custom of singing through the night to calm the animals and to soothe also oneself this i think is the origin then of the dreamy wistful style of cowboy song right which you still hear and a lot of these cowboys they picked up familiar english or irish folk songs of various sorts spanish but they also wrote sentimental songs of their own sometimes lamenting their harsh work their itinerant lifestyle the solitude that it created and casting themselves as sort of long-suffering heroes or adventurers, and just for one little example, a very early camp song called "The Kansas Line" includes the verse: quote, "The cowboy's life is a dreadful life. He's driven through heat and cold. It's almost froze with the water on my clothes. A riding through heat and cold." And you can see here the fact that their work was hard and dangerous and fairly low-paid it could be compensated for by taking on a sort of nobility, a sense of oneself as strong and heroic. And more and more, the sort of symbols and accoutrements of the cowboy, the saddle, the lasso, the spurs, they were given this aura of great meaning that the the cowboy who mastered this art of cattle herding was a romantic figure. And it seems that a lot of them, in this effort to take pride in their hard and harrowing work, their self-reliance, they sought meaning in literature and romance. So again, a lot of these men were literate. They took literature with them to read to themselves or out loud to others, especially at night. Walter Scott reportedly was a great favorite. And some of these cowboys began to see themselves as carrying on a kind of new code of chivalry. They could present themselves as men of courtesy and honor and loyalty. And there's a wonderful passage, again, in Teddy Blue Abbott's book, Uh, We Pointed Them North, where he talks about the cowboys' relationships with women and how they went through this almost kind of mimicry of chivalry. He says they were very much afraid of respectable ladies, women like school teachers or missionaries. They were afraid that they wouldn't know how to act. They were too crude and uncouth. They would never meet these ladies' standards. He says they were afraid they would do something wrong, like mentioning a leg. But they did resolve in this sort of quaint way. They they resolved to act gallantly towards the women that they did encounter and have dealings with, which was mainly prostitutes. Even though, according to the Victorian morals of the time, those were not at all respectable ladies, nonetheless, they took on a sort of code of chivalry towards these women. And many of them took on temporary attachments while they were in a town for a week or a month or a season. They would engage in mock so-called marriages with these prostitutes. And sometimes, on occasion, those could lead to real marriages if they fell in love with a prostitute the respectable thing to do was marry her and the drovers developed a code that insisted on honorable treatment of the prostitutes even if it was purely business dealings and teddy blue abbott relates this remarkable instance i think where he describes a a droving band that left a stop over a cattle town and as they were moving on they learned that one of their members had engaged a prostitute and then stiffed her on the bill had not paid his debt and the cowboys considered that dishonorable they expelled him from the band and then pooled their own money went back into town and paid the debt so they're trying to act out this new sort of code of honor and you can imagine this kind of self-romanticization took on then a further layer of sort of tragic nostalgia as the range was closed and as the cowboy era and the cowboy way of life began to fade. And many cowboy songs lament the coming of barbed wire, which they present as this evil force, this this sort of devil's instrument, which is turning what had been in Eden into a hell. And there's one song with a verse that says, quote, they say that heaven is a free range land. Goodbye, goodbye, oh, fare you well. It's barbed wire fence for the devil's hat band, and barbed wire blankets in hell. And then following in the same vein, in the same tradition, a former drover named Badger Clark wrote a poem in nineteen nineteen, reflecting on this loss of the open range, and he writes. Quote, The trail's a lane, the trail's a lane, dead is the branding fire. The prairies wild are tame and mild, all close corralled with wire. And this sort of nostalgia and this, you know, retrospective romanticization of the cowboy life in the open range then continues right into 20th century Western literature. For example, Larry McMurtry in 1968, in his book, In a Narrow Grave, he describes this wistful nostalgia and sorrow for the age of the big cattle droves, which sort of hangs over his experience of Texas. And from his point of view, it's not simply about barbed wire. He sees it as the cattle era being destroyed by the oil industry. And in a passage in In a Narrow Grave, he writes quote, In their youth, my uncles sat on the barn and watched the last trail herds moving north. I sat on the self same barn and saw only a few oil field pickups and a couple dairy trucks go by. End quote. So in sum, all of the early groundwork for the mythologization of the cowboys began with their own actions and words, their own construction of this mythic cowboy life. And this process ultimately culminated then with Buffalo Bill Cody and his Wild West show. So Cody himself thought of himself as a frontiersman, a man who had been elevated by the West. And in his early life, he worked on wagon trains and cattle drives. He rode as a messenger for the short-lived Pony Express, and he worked as a messenger and scout for the U.S. Cavalry, which was a big employer. Later on, he was able to obtain a tract of grazing land in Nebraska and become a rancher, but... He saw the West as something more extraordinary, more meaningful than just a field of opportunity to make money. He saw it as something more exciting, more romantic, and he stepped into the role of really the first cowboy showman to make the West into a spectacle for the world. And he launched his Wild West show in 1883, just as the rangeland was increasingly being enclosed with barbed wire. And he clearly was thinking of this new industry of sensational showmanship and mass publicity that was pioneered by the great Victorian impresarios like P.T. Barnum. So in his show, Cody presented himself as a frontiersman, an adventurer, and a civilizer of the Wild West. And in Old Age, he's quoted as saying, quote, All my early days, I stood between savagery and civilization. So he's a man on the edge. You could say a sort of a guardian of the forefront of civilization, standing against the chaos of animals, of wild nature, the wilderness, and also of banditry. So his show aimed to dramatize the civilizing process itself, which was happening in the West every day before a live audience. And the show celebrated the extraordinary talents and skills of those who ventured out to tame the West in quotation marks, which is metaphorically then enacted by the roping and the riding and the corralling of wild and feral animals. So Cody brought in the most talented and virtuosic figures to represent various different skills. Horsemanship, including traditional horsemanship, as well as jumping and tricks, horse dancing, the roping and rounding up of wild bulls, and Perhaps most successfully, sharpshooting. So, the big breakout star of his show was the young virtuosic sharpshooter Annie Oakley, who was able to perform really unmatched feats. She was able to stand across the full width of an arena, 30 or more paces, shoot at her husband across the arena, and knock the lighter out of his hand and the cigarette right out of his lips. She was able to shoot a playing card held up in the air edge on in half. And she was able to do all kinds of unbelievable feats, like hitting precise targets behind her over her shoulder, looking at the target in a mirror. So Annie Oakley had an incredible preternatural talent, which is not normal for the West or anywhere else. And she was, in fact, born and raised in Ohio and had very little experience on the Western range. But she came to exemplify something about the West, that it was an arena where the most extraordinary talents came into play and where people, in a sense, became superhuman. And the show also put forward particular characters to represent archetypes of certain kinds of people in the West, For one thing, Cody put forward the so-called King of the Cowboys, who was a man named Levi Buck Taylor. They presented the cowboy not as a ruffian and not as a simple, rustic working man, but as a frontiersman, right? Not rough or vulgar, but noble, self-disciplined, self-governing, both civilized and civilizing, right? So this is where the cowboy became the frontier hero. He then shortly after also put forward The archetypal lawman, in the person of Wild Bill Hickok, who was basically uh, an adventurer who had sometimes been a U.S. marshal, sometimes acted as some sort of sheriff's deputy in various jurisdictions, but who also dabbled in crime himself. He he jumped back and forth on both sides of the law, and Wild Bill Hickok did not love performing. Right, he wanted to be out there on his real adventures, and so he left the show after only one year but he left a powerful impression of the lawman as the man who is just wild and erratic enough himself to take on the lawless West, right? So just as the cowboy himself is sort of animalistic in a way that allows him to confront and tame the animals, Likewise, the lawman, in a sense, is a bit of a bandit, a bit of a wild man himself, which allows him to face the chaos of the West. So the whole show, in a sense, you could say has a dual paradoxical meaning. The show celebrated the civilizers like sheriffs, cowboys, buffalo hunters, who went out and brought order to the wilderness But at the same time, it celebrated the very wildness that those people were trying to subdue, right? They honor the buffalo by hunting and killing it. They honor the wild horse by roping it. And in this way, it was very similar, I think, to an American naming custom that observers have sometimes pointed out, where Americans, as we colonize the landscape, we celebrate what we obliterate. We might set up a town, call it Silver Spring, after a spring that we just paved over. We might create a neighborhood subdivision called Hemlock Grove after chopping down the Hemlock Grove, right? And there seems to be this sort of embedded belief that as we go out and control and tame and build upon the, the landscape, we will take on somehow the qualities and powers of what we destroy, Right? And that got woven very much into this mythology of the Wild West through this Wild West show. And the show was a huge sensation. They toured all around the East and also abroad to Great Britain and the European continent. They created much of the world's image of the West and they spawned a hundred imitators. All kinds of other half-baked shows trying to mimic and provide the same sort of spectacles. And a lot of these traveling shows carried with them the same sort of tension and paradoxes. And in a lot of ways, I think you could say right up through the age of film and television, you could say that in a sense, we have all been constantly watching retreads and imitations of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show over and over again for more than 100 years and ultimately both the shows and then the Western genre of mass entertainment. They are partly about exoticism and spectacle. They are also partly about pushing human capabilities to their limit, casting the West as a place where people become superhuman larger than life. And in this sense, celebrity and the Wild West myth are born together and are closely connected. The sensational shows of Annie Oakley to today the Wild West and Celebrity are linked. And it is also, they're also partly about what is lost, what is lost in this civilizing and taming process and this fantasy of somehow borrowing and keeping that wild power and preserving it even as the wilderness is subdued. And all of these associations that I've been talking about all then transfer very much onto the cowboy, the figure who conquers his environment, but also at the same time becomes partly wild himself. Right, He might rope in the bull, but in some sense he also becomes the bull. So as I said, the mythologization of the cowboy begins with this self-mythologization. It then continues by being canonized. The myth goes through a canonization mainly by Easterners. So for one thing, this is through scholars and statesmen like Teddy Roosevelt, who I mentioned, who was an enormous fan of Buffalo Bill Cody. Then secondly, also by artists. The greatest example of this probably is Frederick Remington, a highly trained artist in East Coast Blue Blood, originally from New York State. But he ventured out into the West as well, and he created really his own style and even genre of western art, showing these dramatic, dynamic scenes of people out on harsh landscapes in the snow or dust storms, striving to tame horses, to rope cattle, interactions between the cowboys and Indians, and all of these scenes shown with great dynamism and action and dramatic forms and light and dark. I think you could say he created a sort of American Baroque For the West. And then, thirdly, most importantly, the myth was canonized by writers. And this started firstly with the pulp dime novelists. So, starting in the 1870s through the 1890s, there were minor novels mainly for boys about the adventures of cowboys, churned out and published by cheap presses, especially, most of all, by Beatles Half Dime Library. And these hundreds and hundreds of novels emphasized the adventure, the danger, the roughness of Western life, and the freedom. They usually had little or no moral content. They were just escapist. They also were very unrealistic, and for one thing, had remarkably little mention of cattle. And this, in a way, set a pattern for Western literature and entertainment that the cowboys seemed to have remarkably little to do with actual cows. But other more respected, in some sense more prestigious writers also then stepped in from the 1880s onward. For one thing, Mark Twain, he wrote some memoirs and recollections about the West, and he heartily endorsed Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show as totally authentic, an authentic representation of life in the West. And he was followed then by more highbrow writers, who tried to give a more sort of dignified cast to the myth, and who then created the literary cowboy. So the first big breakthrough in the creation of a cowboy literary archetype was in 1902 with a novel called The Virginian, written by Owen Wister, who was a lawyer from Philadelphia and also a personal friend of Teddy Roosevelt. And the novel centers on an unnamed cowboy, we only know him as the Virginian, who oversees a ranch in Wyoming. And this man has an enemy who is a gambler, right, a, a, a ruffian, a ne'er-do-well, a dangerous figure with whom the main character fights a duel. And after winning this duel, he then also wins the heart of the blushing schoolmarm in town and takes her off to marry. So the Virginian sets down certain major new conventions that become really cliches of the Western. For one thing, the main character is not colorful and brash, but he is stoic and honorable. The duel that he fights and also his ancestral connection to Virginia invoke old-fashioned aristocratic chivalry, which then gets transferred into this fictitious West. Also, in an interesting way, the dangerous and erratic side of the West and of the cowboy, it is not absent, but rather it is split off and comes to be embodied in a separate character with whom the main character faces off. And this is the beginning of an enduring pattern where the savage and civilized sides of the cowboy, which had coexisted, are now split and personified by contending figures, both of whom are still cowboys but they are cowboys who represent, you could say, different moral principles or different aspects of the archetypal personality. And finally, an obvious one, but interesting to point out, is that the main character is anonymous. And in this way, he's almost withdrawn from ordinary civilization. He's become a completely self-defined character. So in the wake of the Virginian after 1902, The moralistic side of the Western was developed more and more, and particularly by Zane Grey, who became the great master of the Western novel. And Zane Grey's first big hit was in 1912, a novel titled Riders of the Purple Sage. And this novel picks up on certain chivalric themes, honor, loyalty, the protection of women, children, and the aged. The cowboy more and more becomes a protector of civilization, but also of the innocent, much like the medieval knight. And he develops further the cowboy-turned-lawman archetype. So the heroic cowboy is sometimes just a vigilante who then takes up a good aim or a good project, like protecting a farm, a family, a village sometimes he does have some kind of formal institutional legitimization in the form of a badge or a deputization. And he often shows up from places unknown to save the day and then leaves again, never setting roots down too deeply, right? He might have a flirtation with a woman, a family, but he always sets off again. He is fundamentally an itinerant, again, like the medieval knight errant. And even the title of the novel, Riders of the Purple Sage, sort of echoes the names of chivalric orders like Knights of the Red Cross, etc. And in this way, the cowboy lawman comes to represent a kind of American knighthood. And Zane Grey's novels and his imitators then paved the way later for Louis Lamour, the master of grand horse operas, sort of epics taking place on the range, and also then to Larry McMurtry, who writes more subtle and psychologically intense westerns. But the archetypal cowboy still has these certain constants, right? He is essentially solitary. He is often mysterious and aloof. He avoids setting down roots. He is sometimes literally anonymous to the audience or even to others within the story. So you see this theme begin with the Virginian, and then I think you could say it reaches its apotheosis in the Lone Ranger, right? Who begins as a radio character in the 30s, then gets his own TV show in the 40s. And the Lone Ranger premise provides a backstory for why he is anonymous, right? He has escaped a massacre, he's eluding his his enemies. And the famous tagline, of course, is that after he saves the day and rides away, someone asks, who was that masked man? So the Lone Ranger cleverly combines the attributes of the vigilante law enforcer with the outlaw bandit, right? He is elusive. He is always on the run. And furthermore, the Lone Ranger is typical in that he is defined partly by his relation to other archetypes, such as his Indian sidekick. Who in that case is named tonto and by his tough loyal dependable horse so the archetypal cowboy is again a lone figure and in many ways his most meaningful and lasting relationship is with his horse and the fascination with cowboy's horses was slower to develop Right, Horses were just taken as you know beasts of burden, means of transportation. They weren't seen as all that special or remarkable in the 19th century. The fascination with the horses started really with Remington and his paintings, and then it spread through American art and literature after about 1910, just as horses were more and more diminishing in everyday life. They were being Uh, excluded out of urban life, and then came to be displaced by other modes of transit. Finally, automobiles, right? And so it was in this time that the association with a horse started to take on more of a nostalgic and romantic aura. And in a lot of ways, the horse becomes the number two character in the Western myth alongside the cowboy. So the typical cowboy and his horse have a special bond and a sort of private language, It is often, as I said, the most intimate and lasting relationship, a lot like a marriage, and it can even be seen to take the place of a heterosexual marriage. And in fact, one of the prolific dime novelists, Max Brand, wrote about his formula for creating Western stories, and he said specifically, quote, "...there has to be a woman, but not much of a one. A good horse is much more important." And of course, finally, as all of us probably know, after completing an adventure, the archetypal cowboy rides off into the sunset, which represents an eternal recurrence, right? The endless picaresque story of one incident after another, unending. And it represents the maintenance of mystery. The cowboy is essentially unknowable and hence untamable, And also it refers to the geography of the West. The fact that the cowboy always rides off into the sunset implies that he is always moving further and further west after a kind of endlessly receding frontier. Okay, so finally, after the mythic figure of the cowboy is first self-created, then it is canonized by artists and writers. Finally, it is ritualized, specifically in the practice of the rodeo. So the rodeo evolves initially out of the roundup, and the word rodeo is just a Spanish word meaning gathering a roundup. And this was an ordinary yearly or sometimes more than yearly practice where the vaqueros would have to gather together feral cattle in order to brand them, in some cases castrate them, and prepare then to move them north on the trails. Then further, the rodeo tradition drew upon the roundup and added in the taming of wild horses, which also often roamed on the prairies and could be enormously valuable. Horses are worth much more per head than cattle. And then thirdly, the third element of the rodeo came from the informal contests, the sort of tests of will and fortitude that took place on ranches or out on the open range, where cowboys would take on unnecessary and dangerous challenges, such as trying to ride an untamed bull. So by about 1900, or a little after 1900, possibly capitalizing on the popularity of the Wild West show, local impresarios in the West started to formalize these unofficial informal contests and to put on shows in open arenas. And the rodeo, as it took shape, as it was formalized, includes three main contests, the roping of wild cattle, the riding of wild horses or broncos, and the riding of bulls. And the final one is the most difficult and the most dangerous. It often results in injuries. Sometimes the cowboys are killed. And the goal of riding the bull is to hang on to the bucking animal for at least eight seconds. And as Russell Martin, I think, very astutely points out, that eight-second ride, which provides the sort of culminating moment of the rodeo, it is a metaphor for the taming of the West itself, right? which may be achieved by the most brave, powerful, skilled cowboy, but it is only temporary and incomplete right? It can only last for a certain number of seconds before the animal throws off its human rider. And it underscores the essential wildness of the West that must always remain, and that continues to elude control. And down to today, many modern-day cowboys, if one still believes that there are cowboys roaming the prairie today, they are mainly rodeo circuit riders. They are people who hop around, drive around, sometimes fly their own small planes on the rodeo circuit. And this lifestyle recreates a semblance then of the itinerant life of the original cattle drovers. So in this way, even as the original economic conditions that created the cowboy are long gone, nonetheless, the ritualization in the rodeo allows it to be continually renewed and reenacted. Okay, so I've talked some here about Real life, or in quotes, authentic cowboys. I've talked about the literary cowboy of myth. I've talked about the rodeo cowboy. I'll now just make a few comments about the movie cowboy, who appears in uncountable thousands of forms through the years. And I can't possibly encompass the whole life and meaning of the Western genre on film, right? There have been probably hundreds of books written just about Western films. But I will make a few comments about the cowboy archetype, who in some ways becomes a bit more complicated in the world of film. So the cowboy in film is not just straightforwardly a civilizer. In other words, he is not simply like the Virginian, a stoic, honorable figure. He's understood to have multiple sides, sometimes within one personality or sometimes split among different figures. And, and whereas actual 19th century drovers might have liked to think of themselves sort of Don Quixote-like as latter-day knights riding out on adventures, nonetheless, the public has always seen them a bit differently, as half-civilized, half-wild, and not as standing between civilization and savagery as a guardian, which is how Cody presented himself, but rather as somehow straddling the line, right, with a foot on both sides. And especially after 1920, there was an evolution and a development of a rougher and more primitive version of the cowboy, which puts more emphasis on violence, on his half-savagery, and untamability. And for example, the novelist Emerson Hugh wrote in 1923 that the true cowboy is, quote, a product of primitive, chaotic, elemental forces, rough, barbarous, and strong, end quote. And he argued that when the American audience fully accepted this primitive nature within the cowboy, quote, then we shall all love him because at heart each of us is a barbarian too. So there's a lot of ambiguity here in what Emerson Hughes says. What does he mean by saying each of us is a barbarian? Does he mean this is human nature, a universal human nature? Is it a national character? Is he saying... Americans somehow are basically still barbarous. Well, either way, there's an increasing complexity to the cowboy archetype, where people can project their own darker nature, darker impulses onto the cowboy. And when he appears on screen, again, sometimes you see this in one single figure who goes back and forth between good and evil, who has to search for his conscience. Sometimes it's also split. Where you see on the one hand the lawman, and on the other hand the outlaw and rebel, and the outlaw glorified as a rebel against convention and against corruption. So there have been hundreds of books and movies glorifying bandit outlaw figures like Jesse James and Billy the Kid, and often they're romanticized as defiant, nonconformist heroes, and given qualities and heroic acts that they never really had. For example, the Ballad of Jesse James actually explicitly uses the Robin Hood rationale and says that Jesse James robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, which is not historically true at all, right? But you can see similarly to Robin Hood, you can see the figure of, of the outlaw as allowing for an escape and an outlet of antisocial rebellious impulses. This whole genre of outlaw Western really, I think, reaches its apotheosis with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969, where you have these you know, romantic, handsome Hollywood stars playing these bandits, elevating, in a sense, the, the, the new Western into the zeitgeist of the 60s, right, right at the height of the hippie counterculture. So crime and outlawry play a huge and outsized role in the modern mythology of the West. And if one looks at the historical evidence, really there was not that much crime, not nearly as much as is perceived today. In the West, bank robberies, which are constantly seen in B-movie westerns, bank robberies were pretty rare and rarer than in the East where there were more banks and more money. There were also occasional robberies of stagecoaches and trains, which could be vulnerable when they passed through wide-open, empty spaces. But this was basically comparable to the occurrence of property crime in the East. And indeed, there could be a great deal of property crime and murders and rapes and assaults in the Eastern cities in the Gilded Age. In this sense, the West was not all that lawless, except at particular limited places and times. Shootings and gunfights were relatively rare. When people were shot in western towns, it was usually by police or deputies acting under the color of law and shooting minor criminals like gamblers or pimps. Big gunfights like the one that happened at the O.K. Corral are famous mainly because they were very rare and exceptional. And as for the cowboy and guns, these are really inseparable images and symbols in our modern mythology and in western film, right? Somebody always has a gun and somebody always shoots it by the end of the movie. And Cowboys are often portrayed as exceptionally skilled marksmen, right, who can shoot the bad guy's gun right out of his hand, right? All of this is a thousand miles from reality. Cowboys did carry guns, mainly rifles, for the purpose of usually hunting, and also they might carry a small six-shooter, right, a small revolver with six shots, and they did not use them to fight. This was almost the worst firearm you could imagine for the purpose of fighting. It had no aim. It had very little power. It constantly misfired. You couldn't aim it. They carried these small sidearms mainly to shoot uh, dangerous animals like snakes or coyotes, to shoot horses or bulls that were dying, and sometimes also as signals. To signal their location to one another it conveniently made a loud bang they were absolutely terrible weapons for fighting you were better off with a switchblade than one of these guns and furthermore the gun fighting was particularly rare because there were not battles cowboys didn't engage in battles as i said they were civilians and they moved cattle through areas that were securely under the control of the u.s government And in towns and cities, these towns and cities were strict about guns and they tended to ban the, the public carrying of firearms and require registration of any guns that came into towns. So frontier towns were very stringent about keeping any gun violence out. So gunfighting was very rare, violence in general was not more common than it was in the East. But nonetheless, the idea of gunfights in the West was appealing for the purposes of drama. And it wasn't necessarily the frequency of crime or violence itself, but maybe more it was the chaotic nature of the law in the West. The fact that a lot of law enforcement was vigilante by self-appointed, self-gathered posses, by deputies that might be quickly deputized here or there by a sheriff. The fact that it was in this way less formalized, less regularized than in the Eastern cities where law enforcement was done by police forces this might be what made the idea of outlawry and violence and civil strife sort of romantic in the Western setting. Western films, of course, have built this mythology then of the lone man with a gun as the figure who keeps order. right? And this is very useful ideologically because it reconciles a deep essential tension in American society, the tension between individualism and the desire for law and order. Right. Americans are individualists. They like to think of themselves as self made, free people. At the same time, they always want law and order. And in this way, if you imagine this figure of the rugged man with a gun who conveniently finds a conscience and a sense of responsibility and protects civilization, it reconciles this tension. And I think you can see it's from the Western that this, this notorious idea developed that the only thing that can stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. And in this way, of course, Western entertainment serves as a massive ad for the gun industry. But there are, I think, deeper ideological tensions that brought this about. So the cowboy, the lawman, these are just central archetypal figures in this larger mythic world of the Old West, which transferred very quickly and easily onto film. There were thousands of silent westerns starting right from the beginning of the industry in the early 1900s. It carried over very smoothly into the sound era. Thousands more westerns were made in the 20s and 30s, a lot of them cheaply churned out. And the western immediately becomes probably the biggest genre ever in the history of film. And the reasons for this are partly thematic the ease of creating conflict and adventure in this supposedly open environment. Also, one of the reasons surely is the practical ease of filming Westerns. They can be filmed outdoors in a dry climate where filming is easy, Western towns can be easily recreated in the landscape of California, not far from the filmmaking centers of Los Angeles. The sets with fake storefronts were so common and so ubiquitous that even they themselves have become a kind of cliché archetype. Anyone probably who's watched cartoons or satirical movies like Blazing Saddles can picture, right, the fake main street of a western town with a tumbleweed rolling down a saloon that is nothing but a wooden facade with nothing behind it. So the western genre is itself constitutes a massive stream in the history of film and I cannot give the whole history of westerns but I will make a few more basic comments about some basic conventions and formulas and what they might represent. So there is the sort of cliche formula of the Western story, right? Where you have a set of people who are trying to bring civilization and prosperity to the rough landscape. They might start a farm or a ranch or a village, or they're trying to set up a school. They're then threatened by the forces of chaos. Maybe some outlaw bandits or some Indians, and they reach out and call for the help of a good guy. Maybe a vigilante desperado with a gun who finds it in himself to help some people in need. Maybe a lawman acting with a veneer of legitimacy with a badge. Or maybe just a posse of good guys who gather and fight the bad guys. And then our hero who emerges from the fight, after maybe a brief flirtation with a lady, he rides off into the sunset right? And this same basic idea forms in cheap novels, then silent movies, and really comes to fruition in the high Hollywood studio period from the 30s through the 50s. And variations on this theme sometimes could be developed into more high-minded films, right? trying to make some sort of bigger statement, such as High Noon, or The Searchers, or Shane. You can see slight adjustments of the formula to fit with these particular themes, such as, for example, in Shane, where the villains who are threatening a group of farmers are not literal bandits, but big ranchers who want to crush the small crop farmers, and hence there's a sort of populist message But all in all, the enduring myth of the cowboy serves a certain role and a certain purpose in American mythology. The myth of the cowboy makes it seem as if the taming and opening of the West, which entailed the defeat and expulsion of Indians and the securing of the land for American settlers, was achieved by lone principled men with guns acting on their own initiative rather than the historical reality, which is that it was achieved by the U.S. cavalry, pressing the advantage of greater numbers, arms, and money. So in this way, the myth serves as a way of squaring the circle, of reconciling voluntarism on the one hand with state power on the other, right? And an individualistic mythology of the West serves to obscure the importance of collective power and collective force, right it is always the clever sharpshooter who somehow neutralizes the enemy not a massive wall of riflemen charging on horseback which is how power was really exercised in the west so the cowboy myth shows an effort to reconcile this basic american tension between individualism and collectivity individualism and conformism right and this what you could say is a sort of national paradox that we celebrate freedom but also demand law and order. So the gun, of course, is a phallic symbol. It represents masculine independence, which can be wielded for good or for ill. And the cowboy, as I said, splits into two forms, the outlaw and the lawman. And we can see in, our audience, in the audience, we can see ourselves reflected in both the outlaw and the lawman. And in fact, many cowboys, both real and fictitious, were both and switched back and forth. In the Western dramas, the lawman is good, strong, stoic, self-assured, and brave, but in their way, the outlaws are glorified as well, right? Minor bandits with sordid careers are turned into Robin Hood figures, and you could say in a way the gun battles that we typically see in the Western and the shootouts in Western streets are sort of psychodramas. Americans might want to act out fantasies of rebellion, defiance, lawbreaking, but at the same time, we also want the assurance that after being released, these destructive impulses will then be contained. And hence, it's important that in the end, the law always wins. So you can see the, the importance and the centrality of this mythology to um, the American psyche, certainly very ingrained by the mid 20th century. Now, in recent years, one can see different changing incarnations and experiments with the cowboy myth, often going along with a sense of disillusionment about the whole American experiment. So for one thing, there's a wave of movies about the urban cowboy, who is now kind of trapped in civilization, dislocated, in danger of being tamed by modernity, right? Exactly the sort of thing Teddy Roosevelt was afraid of. So you have Midnight Cowboy in 1969, Electric Cowboy in 1979, Urban Cowboy in 1980, all on this sort of theme. And interestingly, Electric Cowboy from 1979 with Robert Redford follows a rodeo cowboy who goes to perform at Caesar's Palace, and he's becoming more and more disillusioned with with what he sees as the artificiality of these performances. And he takes up a horse and then finds out that it has been drugged. And in his outrage, he runs out of the casino with the horse down the Las Vegas Strip and out into the open west. And in a way, the movie can be seen as representing a sort of last stand for the free-spirited cowboy as he is reduced down to sort of cheap, kitschy entertainment. And you can see, again, a repetition of the same sort of political anxieties and resonances, a desire to return to traditional masculine independence, which then, in a way, coincides with the Reagan revolution, right? Reagan himself having been A movie cowboy in many westerns the zeitgeist of the 70s gives way to this sort of reaffirmation of american mythology in the 80s with a massive cowboy revival of fashion in the early 80s for cowboy boots and accoutrements and the emergence of these massive cowboy clubs around Texas, which then spread styles like line dancing. Now, of course, also at the same time, probably a lot of you know that the cowboy mythology has also transferred fairly smoothly into space, right? space provides a solution to the closing of the frontier. It's the new frontier. And you can see just very obviously archetypically American space heroes like Han Solo in Star Wars as just a repetition of the itinerant cowboy adventurer. And specifically, I think you can see Han Solo's relationship with Chewbacca, where they share this sort of weird private language with one another as very much like the cowboy and his horse. And then in recent years, I think you can see, for one thing, the sort of final giving up, the final devolution of the cowboy mythology into just outright kitsch, into unserious kitsch, such as in movies like Wild Wild West, which I think is arguably the worst movie ever made, and I won't say any more about it. And following from movies like Wild Wild West, then the rise of steampunk, which is Not exactly a form of literature or entertainment. It's an aesthetic or a style seen in clothes, games, fan fiction and fan art, which tries to sort of evoke a slightly revised picture of the Old West, where anachronistic technologies are put into this sort of almost hyper-real atmosphere and environment environment. And I think steampunk probably arose partly from Back to the Future Part 3, where you see uh, this mad scientist transported into the Old West and then trying to retrofit and use a steam locomotive, the sort of symbol of modern civilization in the 19th century, as a new time machine to allow the sort of bridging and collapse between past and present. And also you might think of Little Nas X and his hit song, Old Town Road, which I think very consciously reproduces sort of the hackneyed cliches of country-western music and iconography, and which then inspired a sort of weird debate about whether that song counts as a real country song, and by extension, over whether it was sincere or ironic. Right? It's almost become impossible to tell the difference right? There's so much kitsch and self-awareness and cliche now accrued around the mythology of the West. You almost can't tell what is serious and what's a joke. And in some ways, you can see a sort of questioning or revisiting of the Old West with a sense of irony, a cynical view of the West as totally unromantic, right? But as purely anarchic and amoral, right? In a way that intentionally undermines our sort of sacred mythology. And an early development of this, a forerunner, maybe you can see in Sergio Leone's films like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which center on a purely selfish desperado, right? Who has a lot of the looks and habits and and accoutrements of the cowboy, but who is essentially amoral and selfish and is anonymous, right? The man with no name. And this puts a sinister spin, right, on the cowboy's anonymity. His lack of name and identity signify a lack of accountability. And this cynicism, I think you can see then developing further in a sense of inescapability and fatalism, right? A feeling that the Old West has been reenacted so many times that we are all kind of forced, pulled back into it, forced to act out the same fate, the same tragedy over and over again. And I think you can see that starting, for one thing, with the movie Unforgiven by Clint Eastwood, where you see an old desperado being drawn back into a world of crime and violence that he wanted to move away from. And you can see this sort of inexorable trap-like plot pulling him in, which I think you can take as sort of symbolizing present-day Americans being trapped in this myth, being unable to escape it. and the same sense, I think you can see with smaller, arty Western films, like for example, 310 to Yuma, in which the train schedule is then used as a metaphor for the unstoppable work of fate. And finally, I'll just point out a couple of instances where, again, you can see the Old West mythology merging with science fiction, emphasizing this sort of inaccessibility of a real West, right? of being trapped in the mythology. And one, of course, is the TV show Westworld, where the main characters that we see in this Wild West town are literally programmed machines who are being forced to act out a pre-written mythic cycle over and over again. right? So there's a lot of meta-textual meaning here in Westworld, the exposure of artifice and a sense of the West as an amusement park or a game that is only mimicking a shadow of reality. And all of these themes and all of these links are then, I think, made explicit again in the recent movie Nope by uh, Jordan Peele, where you see clearly the intertwining of the cowboy mythos, this sort of Central American mythos, with outer space, space aliens, right? And in this movie, the, the alien sort of takes the place of the Indian, that the cowboys are trying to hunt out and eliminate from the landscape, right? So the cowboys, space aliens, and film, right? It is everything about Nope is about capturing, somehow conquering and capturing this evil alien presence by photographing it, by capturing it on film, as if representation is somehow more real than reality. So you can see Nope, I think, is a sort of further heightening of this self-aware irony of constant reproduction of the west on film. And lastly, I should also mention the recent exploration of homoeroticism in the cowboy myth, right? Which started really with Midnight Cowboy in 1969 but meanwhile also appeared in print and in literature about the West, such as in the works of Thomas Savage, and then also taken up by Annie Pruell, most famously, of course, in her short story, Brokeback Mountain, which was then made into a movie. And when Brokeback Mountain came out, it made waves, right? It was a tragic romance set against the dramatic vistas of Montana, and it was seen as groundbreaking, right? And and iconoclastic despite or maybe you could say because of its very conventional western style, right? The Brokeback Mountain is more or less in keeping with the traditional tone going all the way back to the cowboy ballads where the men live this life of loneliness with limited relationships. And in Brokeback Mountain the men are distracted by one another, right? They They are pulled away from the proper domestic life and married life by their obsession with each other, right? As as exemplified by that famous line, right? I wish I knew how to quit you. And in this way, it's just a variation on the same theme, right? Of the cowboy being drawn away from the love of women and from marriage by his attraction to the freedom of the open range, the landscapes, and his horse, right? And in, in the story that pruell wrote, you can see an almost explicit parallel here where each of these men's relationship with each other is like the archetypal cowboy's relationship with his horse. And there's one point where Ennis meets up with Jack after a long separation. He's very excited and he calls Jack Little Darling, which the narrator says is a name that he used for horses. So in this way, you can see this homosexual fixation between these two men as a new guise for the romance of the cowboy life. And then, of course, there's the recent movie, The Power of the Dog, which is much more sinister and menacing, Right where you see the hyper-masculinity of the cowboy persona used as a cover for self-hate right? And the sexual repression and sort of self-destructiveness of the villain character in The Power of the Dog is then symbolized with poison, right? The symbol of poison or infection, which ultimately destroys him. And it was interesting when I read about this film, some critics described it as a subversion or an upending of the cowboy genre, but I didn't see it that way. In the case of Brokeback Mountain, it's it's a pretty color by numbers, traditional cowboy tale, right? In Power of the Dog, I didn't see it as a Western or a cowboy movie, personally, because for one thing, it takes place in the 1920s. And so it's not in the Old West, properly speaking, which Brokeback Mountain is not either. It also takes place in the 20th century. But I looked at The Power of the Dog as a movie that just happens to be set in the Western United States, And the villain of the story is not really a cowboy. He's a fake cowboy. He handles cattle, but he doesn't act out the familiar tropes and cliches of the cowboy. And really, the story, as I saw it, was really a domestic drama, a family drama that just happened to be set in Montana in the 1920s and which really was more about the contrast between the open land, the dramatic open land, and the stifling enclosed family relationships of the main characters. So it's, you could say it's a kind of American family closet drama, but the fact that people saw it as a comment on the Western and the cowboy just shows how close those links are, how it's almost unavoidable for an American to look at a man in chaps riding a horse and think, this is a cowboy story. This is a Western. So in this way, the the imagery, the mythology of the West has very much endured down to the present. And in sum, after this long discussion, I would say the myth of the Old West is not just a v- chapter in the story of the frontier. It's something more strange and unsettling. It's the story of a stalled frontier, a frontier that has failed for some period of time to move or to change. It's a frontier trapped in equipoise between contending forces, between order and chaos, between man and animal, between law and barbarism, between the white man and the Indian, and between civilization and savagery. Right? It's a story of stalemate, and it's a story of internal struggle. And in this way, the Old West has entered into the timeless realm of myth, where opposing forces, opposing elemental forces, contend and struggle without resolve. Right? There is only the next battle, the next episode, and the next. And in this way, it's a reflection of a dilemma that in some ways is universal, but also is especially American. Right, where intense individualism and the celebration of ambition creates certain dilemmas and paradoxes. Right, The dilemma of constantly deferred or failed dreams, right? the failure of ambitions to come to fruition, the possibilities unrealized, where freedom leads to unending disappointment and irresolution. And the wistful and nostalgic tone of cowboy folklore and song, I think, happened to lend itself perfectly to the expression of this mood, the sense of the link between freedom and solitude, between possibility and disappointment, which I think you could call all in all the American tragic, right? And the Old West is the setting for this eternal American tragedy. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you can help to contribute and sign up as a patron, you'll be able to hear my patron-only materials, including the last myth of the month on conspiracy theories. Thank you.